Hey everyone, you are listening to the New Discourses Podcast. I'm James Lindsay, and we're talking about authenticity. It's been a while. I've wanted to talk about authenticity for a long time. It's a difficult topic to talk about. I wanted to actually, I've been making the case, I should say, I've been, I've been trying to make the case to get people to understand that something about the woke ideology or critical social justice, if you like, or even its precursors in postmodernism in particular, and this is where I kind of really noticed it, postmodernism stems from a crisis of authenticity. It's very difficult to read the postmodern literature and not come to the conclusion, or the woke literature even, and come to the, it's very difficult to read these things and not come to the conclusion that these people are suffering a profound crisis of the authentic. Now, for me, and I've always hesitated to give advice, I've been trying to dip my toes into it on my uh, subscribers-only podcast, uh, James Lindsay Only Subs, which you can get on New Discourses if you sign up to support me somehow. Please and thank you. Um, I've, I've, I'm usually hesitant to give advice, but authenticity has been an incredibly important theme for me uh, for most of my adult life, probably even in my teenage years, is finding authenticity. You might think that this is kind of funny, given that I participated in the Grievance Studies Affair, which people would say was being very inauthentic, but in fact, it was that was satire, and um, the goal was actually to... Uh, to express, you know, that there's a problem of this kind, that, that even scholarship has become inauthentic, and to alert people to that fact. Now, I, as, as, as an individual, uh, am a huge fan of the absurd. The absurd is my favorite type of humor, and I kind of fancy myself as a satirist. Um, I think if I had a perfect dream world, if you could quit your job and do anything, what would you do? I, I probably would write satire. Um if that were the case. And so I still think it was in line with being authentic to make those kinds of jokes. The thing with authenticity is, is that it's scary. Finding authenticity is scary. And so it's easy to develop, especially I think maybe in a world where we're kind of, you know, we live in cities. A lot of us were divorced from the land. You know, you kind of hear these things when you, again, you read the postmodern literature and you really get the sense of this. It's difficult to find authenticity when you spend most of your time on the internet or watching television or living in a city, a so-called concrete jungle. Everything seems fake. Everything seems artificial. You're eating, you know, packaged food or whatever. It seems very difficult to connect to the real. And it's very easy, therefore, to be drawn in to ideas that that make you feel alienated from the real and that philosophies like postmodernism that speak into that alienation and lead to kind of discontentment and this, I don't know, almost hipster style detached irony from, from reality. And this is really what I want to try to answer because authenticity is woke kryptonite. There are other things that are woke kryptonite as well. I don't know if kryptonite, I don't remember my Superman well enough to know if it comes in different colors or something like that, but uh, they more power, different effects on Superman. But like responsibility is a woke kryptonite. Maybe that's the red one or green one or whatever. And then authenticity is another huge woke kryptonite though. The woke don't really have any power over people who are authentic. People who are genuinely authentic can resist most of the woke manipulations once they at least know a little bit about them. Because wokeness taps into that feeling of inauthenticity. Postmodernism taps into that feeling of inauthenticity. Neo-Marxism, or critical theory, taps into that feeling of inauthenticity, and they exploit that. So it's when you hear like Marxists talking about bourgeois values, they're talking about this kind of failure of authenticity. The bourgeois for the French 
before the French Revolution, before Marx, Marx didn't make up the term bourgeoisie. This was a term that was used in France to describe a kind of middleman class that was happening and, and kind of sucking up a lot of the money in pre-revolutionary France. And these values of the bourgeois are the, the ideas, again, that it's like fake high culture. It's people mimicking high culture in a very inauthentic way. They're not really of high culture, but they're acting like high culture. They're the Kardashians or whatever, you know, they're, they're dressing like they're, like they're glamorous, but they're actually not glamorous. And this lack of authenticity is something that all of these lines of thought have spoken into. So finding authenticity is really a big theme that I want to try to communicate, but it's a very difficult thing. I'll talk more about what I think it takes to find authenticity near the end of the podcast. For the moment, I'll just point out that authenticity is scary. It's very scary for people um, to be authentic. It's very, very scary. And the reason is simple. When you're authentic, the thing you're putting on the line is your real self. If you're being inauthentic and people don't like you or people say something about your work or they say something about how you behaved or whatever, you know that it was a projected image of yourself an avatar of yourself that you put out there that people didn't like, and the real you that you identify as inside remains protected. This is, in its extremity, or its extreme, uh, most extreme expression, a personality disorder called schizoid personality disorder. That's actually where this cleavage between the real self and the authentic self happens extremely profoundly, usually in childhood, eight or nine years old, at which point the real self withdraws and the you psychologically produce a projected external self um, that interacts with the world but is false and so in schizoid personality disorder the problem is is that your true inner self never matures emotionally because you've isolated or insulated it from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune as has been said and so it never grows it never matures and so you're still childlike inside you have a very childlike conception of the world and how it should work you project yourself into these, you tell yourself stories, you could write novels in your own head, you have false conversations that don't really exist with people, you reimagine every social interaction or you pregame your social interactions in your head, and it's very distressing when they don't go the way that they're supposed to go, and ultimately it is the result of a gigantic protective mechanism for your real self. It is literally a personality disorder level of projecting an inauthentic self or set of inauthentic selves so that you don't have to confront reality as you really are and thus bear the pain of say rejection or mockery or being teased or having things go badly because it wasn't really you so being authentic is very scary because now it's really got to be you there's no mask you don't get to wear a mask if you're authentic you have to show your real face and if people don't like your real face it's your face they didn't like if people don't like you when you're authentic it's you they don't like. And that's really difficult for people to understand is part of life. It's a difficult part of life. Not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody's going to like the way that you are, the way that you present yourself, the way that you act, the way that you think, the way that your mannerisms, but some people will. And realizing that you don't have to be universally liked or you don't have to be objectively great or you don't have to be objectively beautiful or whatever it is, uh, is a very difficult part of growing up. It's a very difficult part of maturity and becoming authentic, which you might even say in some 
better sense, which we often hear, you know, different ideologies saying, you know, you got to become like a child. Children are typically pretty authentic, right? And so that's like a positive side of becoming like a child. You don't have to become naive like a child. You don't have to be suggestible like a child. You don't have to, there's a lot of things about impulsive like a child. You don't have to become those things. But when we hear these admonitions that you should become in some sense like a child, there is an authenticity there, maybe a curiosity as well, that are very valuable. But it's risky. It's difficult for people to do. And the longer they've played kind of in this rat race of life, projecting an inauthentic self, the harder it is for them to get back to being really them and to take those risks. And the longer you go and the less you practice doing it, the scarier it is because you don't know what it feels like and how to deal with somebody not liking you when you're authentic. So I say that wokeness, neo-Marxism, which is also critical theory and postmodernism, are all speaking a gigantic, you could even say Marxism in a sense, all speaking a gigantic crisis of authenticity. The whole thing can be framed as a crisis of authenticity. There are other ways to frame it. That's, I'm not saying it is just that, but that is certainly in line with it. This is probably why you see people who, especially women for some reason, who have schizoid personality disorder. Um, I, I would bet that if you were allowed to do the research and find out, you'd find an enormously high incidence of schizoid personality disorder within certain very... Uh, sensitive branches of, of feminist activism. Um, you probably would find it in some of these other identity-based activisms. Why? Because they're writing a script about what the perfect world would look like for somebody like them, but it's got a childly, a childlike understanding and not a positive connotation of that. A childlike understanding of reality and this inability to, to confront who they are authentically. So I find when I read postmodernism more than the others, but all of these these kind of uh, things that we would classify in cynical theories under the heading theory with a capital T, when I read these things, I read a profound crisis of authenticity. So I'll, I'll summarize each of the two big branches, the postmodern and critical theory or neo-Marxist side, and kind of show you um, to some degree what I mean. So postmodernism is a huge crisis of authenticity. It's probably the biggest one, and it doesn't really matter which postmodernist we pick out of the hat. We can find how there's this huge crisis of authenticity. You even hear one is uh, more Marxist than postmodernist, but he's right on the edge. Frederick Jameson actually even talks about this. Like a lot of his stuff talks about the nostalgia for the for the real, the nostalgia of life lost, and that the postmodern condition. And he even criticizes postmodernism for having like this this crisis of authenticity that leads to this nostalgia uh, for for the way things used to be. Okay, but we could pull, for example, Michel Foucault, who's kind of like identified usually as Mr. Postmodern, although there are, there are decent cases to make that there are other Mr. Postmoderns that are more postmodern than, than Foucault. With Foucault, not everything he writes is about this, but you know, one of his big themes was expanding the potentialities of being. Now, of course, this is largely because he was a repressed, um, sadomasochistic, uh, homosexual who wanted to be a philosopher whose dad wanted him to be a doctor. So he, you know, had the disapproval of his family, the disapproval of society as a, uh, sexually deviant in a very real sense, also pedophilic, um, homosexual in a time and place where that wasn't acceptable whatsoever. But, you know, 
not all of his thought was all about just expanding potentialities of being to enable to enable him to live out his his proclivities we'll say his perversions really in particular when you get to pedophilia we're talking perversions with expanding potentialities of being being you know very central to his philosophy but what he's actually digging at there on a level is trying to get to who you are authentically and not being constrained by the social and moral constraints of society that prevent you from being able to be who you actually are. So when you're talking about expanding the potentialities of being, that's a thing. And what Foucault says, what kind of an essence, not all of the essence, but a very deep essence of much of Foucault's philosophy is that we are culturally conditioned or socialized and therefore controlled by society. We're controlled by the expectations and norms of society. You can kind of get this in Discipline and Punish, for example, where he's talking about that if you create these norms, then you can actually get people to discipline themselves, self-discipline. And you can get people to punish themselves and become feel guilty for transgressing these norms. And people will therefore, you know, social control can therefore be achieved, not necessarily necessarily just through prisons, which he was obviously very interested in, not necessarily just through through claiming that dissidents are mad and putting them in asylums. That was another big theme in his work. But actually, by getting them to accept a rather narrow range of life experience as the only thing that's acceptable and saddling them with guilt if they step outside of that, saddling them with feeling like an outsider or a freak or a weirdo or a dissident or whatever it happens to be. This was a huge thing. So Foucault, you know, he's talking about expanding potentialities of being. Um, So what does that mean? You know, different, what are the potential, the entire potential range of human expression of how you can be as a person? That's potentialities of being. He wants to expand that range, right? Probably in truth to make room for his own perversions. You know, it's funny that Foucault was so Nietzschean, and Nietzsche was the one who remarked that usually or very often the philosophers are not actually doing philosophy or rationalizing their own pathologies, which Foucault would definitely have known about, even though his philosophy can largely, not all, but largely be said to have connected to that in a very real way, like he was guilty of the thing that he uh, would have been aware of. But nevertheless, you find the crisis of authenticity in Foucault and just how profoundly you read in his philosophy the idea that cultural conditions constrain people and prevent them from being who they authentically are. And in his case, that did include being a pedophile, which is not so good. Um, You know, some norms are definitely worth maintaining. And of course, we see that in wokeness today. We see this kind of push for... um, minor attracted persons, MAP as they call them, pedophiles is what they are. You're not supposed to call them that. Or sometimes you see the LGBT, sometimes Q is then to, you're supposed to add a P for that. You know, you know what the P stands for. This kind of thing has carried forth from Foucault into queer theory, which is extremely Foucaultian in its orientation. And it's in a sense, a very dark corner, maybe not even a corner, a heart of queer theory that um, really you know, crosses some, some, some dark lines. But for Foucault, if we try to be very charitable with this, we don't just go into it being, oh, well, he's terrible or whatever. Let's take his philosophy at face value and not try to psychoanalyze where it came from or whatever. If we say 
that his objective was to expand potentialities of being what he's in queer theory does this for sure is that it's trying to expand the range of people to live authentically as they seem to identify themselves and that means for Foucault who again was very Nietzschean to escape the idea of a prevailing cultural architecture a morality a system of morals that then constrains people and makes them be be and live ways that they are not and you know personally i resonate with some of this i don't think foucault was 100 percent wrong with that but i do think that he obviously went much too far with what he was talking about i think that there is room to question and to create more freedom for people to live their true authentic selves without having to throw all of the moral order out of the window so so for Foucault, for in Foucault you find a particular aspect of this kind of crisis of authenticity but you see it also in Derrida Jacques Derrida the great post-structuralist who is focused so much on language the power of language and the structure of language and how the structure of language conveys power and how meaning attaches to words and to, to language and what language can communicate and what it cannot um, Derrida had this really kind of weird view that language that words don't really mean anything they don't refer I should say to anything real that within language there's an infinite deferral of meaning so what does that mean so you get a dictionary you take your favorite word it doesn't matter maybe the word is um, you know potato and you look up potato in the dictionary and what do you see you don't see a potato you see more words and as much time as you try to spend staring at a potato, maybe you understand what a potato is to some degree, but if you really want to understand what's going on with a potato, you're going to see something like it being a tuber. You're going to see something about it being a you know, repository of starches for plants. If you want to understand what a potato really is, you're going to just run into more words so that to understand potato, you have to understand tuber. You have to understand plant. You might have to understand nightshade. You might have to understand living thing. You might have to understand... Um, starches you might have to you know there's a lot of stuff that you have to understand and it's all other words and if you were to go to any of those words so we start with potato and we go to tuber you're going to look up tuber and what are you going to run into even more words you're going to run into a definition of tuber that's going to say something about an underground starch storing i haven't i don't have the de definition in front of me you know underground starch storing organ of certain plants blah 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 and so if you were to like look up there you go to starches and you look that up and it's going to talk about carbohydrates you're going to look up carbohydrates and it's talking about carbon hydrogen oxygen atoms or whatever and you're going to look up carbon and you're going to get this whole thing and you look up you know and again and again and again now you're looking up electrons now you're looking up you know energy levels now you're looking up this now you're and it's one word leads to another leads to another leads to another leads to another so for derrida there's no getting to the actual potato by the word potato there's only getting to other words so this is that words don't provide meaning in and of themselves for Derrida they they in fact meaning is infinitely deferred from the words the words exist in webs of meaning known as discourses and that those discourses just refer to the way that words refer to other words and in relationship with one another and that you have to understand a thing in terms of what it is and then what it's not but when you say what it is and what it's not we're talking about other words so potato for example is differentiated from a carrot they're both root vegetables so now we're looking up root separately and we find different words but a carrot and a potato are different so something that's in essence of what a potato is is not carrot right they're both roots but they're different and so 
this is the idea is that no matter how, where you look, no matter how you dig for Derrida, you never get to the real meaning of a word. You just get to more words. And these words exist in this web of meaning. The whole thing is symbolic on a profound level. And so this means that language for Derrida is completely, this is post-structuralism in a, in, in a nutshell in a sense, is that language is completely divorced from reality. Meaning cannot be extracted in any real way from language. And of course, you know, this isn't, this isn't correct. And uh, I did an, a recent episode, I'll mention this again soon. I did, a, I did an episode of Benjamin Boyce's podcast with Vocal Distance. My friend Vocal Distance is his code name on Twitter. And he talked about, you know, John Searle's responses to Derrida's uh, infinite deferral of meaning. But if you're talking about infinite deferral of meaning, what you're saying is that you don't really have any way to connect. You're going to think about things. And if you think about things, you're going to verbalize them in your head and you're going to think in words and the words don't connect you to reality at all. And another idea that kind of falls off of this Derrida idea that's, again, attachment to this crisis of authenticity theme that you see in postmodernism is, and this isn't technically um, Derrida's idea, is that, but the death of the author, that's Roland Barthes. And uh, what the idea, and this really does come with the same line of thought as Derrida, is that you can't actually tell when you read a text what the author actually meant. And it doesn't really matter. Every text becomes a new text depending on who reads it and why they read it and whatever. So this podcast, if somebody were to hear the coded message about bunny rabbits underneath it, as Helen Pluckrose was, used to be fond of pointed at, pointing out, would actually have been about bunny rabbits, not about authenticity, not about a crisis of authenticity, not about finding authenticity. And so again, you have this removal that there's no authentic meaning to any book. The author's voice itself there's no authentic meaning. This, is, of course, has profound consequences in, within literature, but it has even more profound consequences within scripture-based religions, because now there's no authoritative reading. There is no authorial intent behind the scriptures. And all of a sudden, if you bring Derrida's uh, line of thought, post-structuralist line of thought, to bear on scripture, then all of a sudden... Um, there's no way to determine what the scriptures actually meaning to communicate. There is no authentic religion anymore. All the religions become inauthentic. And you can see how if this is something that they believe, then certainly, certainly you have a crisis of authenticity at the heart of this thought. And that's ultimately my big point. Um, John Francois Leotard, uh, Another one, you know, in 1979, he wrote The Postmodern Condition, and he's talking about the postmodern condition. He decides that he defines as postmodern, uh, simplifying the extreme, he defines as postmodern, uh, a incredulity toward meta narrative. So there's these sweeping explanations that we have for how society works, whether those are something kind of narrow, like manifest destiny, we're going to take the conquer, you know, conquer the continent, the civilizing mission of France, we're going to spread civilization from Europe out to the rest of the world. These are meta narratives, whether it's communism or Marxism, whether, you know, we have this historicity, we have this idea that history is going to progress according to, I said, I said historicity, I meant historicism, uh, this idea that history is going to progress according to a purposed direction, that, that progress, progressivism itself progresses in this way, you know, or goes in this way, the arc of history bends toward justice, the moral arc of history bends toward justice. These kinds of things are all Meta narratives. The American experiment is a meta narrative. It tells us what we mean to be American. And he swept up into that capitalism and science and all of the religions. 
and he says incredulity toward those things, thinking that none of those are actually real, that they do not tell us anything real. They're just cultural constructs. That's at the heart of postmodernity, the epic of time in which we realize that we live in a postmodern era, a postmodern era that is now clearly detached from reality. We have no real access to reality. We saw that, by the way, in Foucault as well. Foucault was convinced that there was no access to truth. You see that echoed by Richard Rorty, who said things like, the world may be out there, but the truth is not out there. That was another... Rorty's a mostly postmodern philosopher. He's an American pragmatist. He's a little bit different from these French guys, but he had imported a lot of these ideas. But with Foucault, you have this idea of the cultural conditioning of knowledge. So for for Foucault, if I make a truth claim, it might be true, it might be false, but what's more relevant is that some power dynamic was involved in making it so I could say that and it be considered true. And that power dynamic therefore taints the idea of truth with power or politics. So nothing is real. Everything is political. Everything is cultural. And you see this echoed in this incredulity toward meta narratives that Lyotard lays out. And another point that he raises in the postmodern condition, which at this point you could say the postmodern condition, postmodernity itself, is a crisis of authenticity. The stories we tell ourselves about the world aren't real. It's not authentic. That's not really what's going on. But he has this other idea that I think is extremely important, which is what he calls legitimation by parology, which is a lot of fancy words. Legitimation is easier to understand. It means how we decide if something's legitimate or not. Parology is different. Paralogic is a kind of simplification, uh, a, a something that looks logical, that lives next to logic, but is not genuinely logical. And so a parology for Lyotard ultimately means a consensus. So again, a social consensus, and we're going to legitimate ideas. We're going to consider ideas to be legitimate or true or valid or whichever one of these words we want to use based upon whatever the social consensus around us is. And that's how we legitimate ideas in postmodernity because there is no access to objective truth. There is no access to the real. It's all a matter of what people have as as hold as, as the consensus view. And that's what's real. That's what's true. But of course, it's not real. Then perhaps, you know, the most blazingly clear crisis of authenticity postmodern author that we have is John Baudrillard, whose work went on to inspire The Matrix, although Baudrillard apparently disavowed that The Matrix represented his work correctly, uh, looks like it represented his work correctly. And as a matter of fact, when, when at the beginning of The Matrix, if you've seen the film, you may remember before the red pill, blue pill scene, before before Neo is found by Morpheus. He's in his he's in his little apartment and he's got his contraband uh, software and he stores it in a book that he keeps in a drawer. And the book is actually Baudrillard's Simulacra and Simulation. And so the authors, or the, the producers, I should say, the screenwriters of The Matrix certainly thought that they were doing something with Baudrillard's ideas. And I think that they were. And obviously you can see that the matrix is like the ultimate expression of a crisis of authenticity. The entire world you think you inhabit is inauthentic. And you take the red pill and you pop out and realize that you live in this completely inauthentic world. Baudrillard literally describes a few concepts, however, that are so clearly, so clearly crisis of authenticity oriented that it's very difficult not to think of him in that regard. 
He talks about the desert of the real, that we live like, you can imagine yourself like in the middle of nowhere in the Sahara Desert, like miles and miles of sand and stones around you and nothing recognizable and no water whatsoever anywhere you turn, except water is connection to reality for him. You're in this desert of the real, that life in this postmodern world is so divorced from reality that we have a desert of the real. It's a desert of authenticity is what he's talking about. He says, in fact, that the real has been replaced by hyper-reality, something more real than real, if you will, hyper-reality. We live in hyper-reality as opposed to reality. What's hyper-reality? More real than real. It's pro-wrestling. You know, it's it's supermodels that have, you know, been done up with makeup and, and who've not eaten properly in months and they are wearing extraordinary fashions that have to basically be sewn, they have to be sewn into and their, you know, their makeup, their hair is everything perfect by professionals. The lighting is more real than real. Then their pictures are photoshopped and exaggerated and perfected even further. So they're more beautiful than reality can produce. That's hyper reality. Okay, and so what Baudrillard points out is kind of the crux of his philosophy is that nothing, in fact, is real anymore because we occupy hyper-reality. He gives out this metaphor of a map. It's very important to kind of realize. He says, imagine, you know, a thought experiment. Imagine there's this map that's so big and so detailed that it's an exact one-to-one mapping onto reality. It is an exact copy of reality, except that it's not reality. That he said, if such a thing existed, you know, the cartographers, the people who made this map are going to be very concerned with the map to the point where they may lose sight of reality entirely. And that's hyper reality. That's, that's reality beyond reality. Um, it's living in a simulation again, crisis of authenticity. So, um, my friend, I mentioned vocal distance. We were on the podcast with Benjamin Boyce, fairly recently. I know that's that this is a timeless podcast, so therefore that's not going to mean much, but you can meditate on the philosoph- the philosophical implications of that, uh, temporality or whatever. But he gave this great example of what hyperreality is about in Baudrillard's Crisis of Authenticity through strawberries. So we'll call this Vocals Strawberries. I think it's a very lucid argument, so much so that I want to repeat it. And he says, you know, imagine that we're way back in in, in ancient history, he says Roman times in his, but we'll say way back in ancient history, and we discover a patch of wild strawberries. I'll even tell you, when I was a kid, I was at my grandparents' house, and there was this field encircled by this round road, and we used to go over to the round road and run and ride our bikes as fast as we could around this loop, and in the middle of this loop, there was this big flat grassy area, and we'd play baseball in the grassy area. It's almost a shape of a baseball field. It's kind of interesting. There was a very small rural area, small town rural area, so there's very little traffic, so it was safe even though there's a road to use the road as a racetrack or as the perimeter of a baseball field or whatever. And one time we were out there, and we stumbled upon all these little wild strawberries growing in the middle of this field. And we sat down and we, they were tiny, they're tiny, tiny. They were smaller than, than blueberries or smaller than, than raspberries. They're very small, um, almost the size of like kernels of corn. They were very small, little bright red strawberries. And they were so sweet. They were just so, so good. I might've been 10 when this happened. I can't remember, but in my memory, they're still the best strawberries I ever ate in my life. So we begin with this. We're in, we're in ancient history or we're in eight years old and in the middle of that experience, you know, eating these strawberries and they're just fabulous strawberries. And so that's 
a strawberry. That's real. That's for Baudrillard. That which is real is that which can be copied. That's the real strawberry. It's wild. It's a wild strawberry. Nature produced that through natural processes and it grew there in a very real and authentic sense in reality. But then I go to the grocery store and the the, the strawberries we get at the grocery store have been selectively bred to be bigger and redder and juicier. You would say sweeter, but they're not, but maybe they could be, you know, so they're, they're bred according to certain characteristics and they taste like strawberries, but they don't taste like those wild strawberries. They're already one layer of simulation. They're already a simulacra of strawberries. They're different. And then what Wokel did was took this even further. He said, now you've got your, your selectively bred strawberries. And then somebody thinks, you know, wow, imagine if we blended these strawberries up and concentrated the flavor, and then we added sugar and made a proper strawberry candy, kind of those old school strawberry candies out of the strawberries. So made with real strawberry juice or real strawberry puree or whatever, and then we clean it up and we strain it and we boil it down with sugar and so on, and we produce a strawberry candy that's flavored with real strawberries. And now you have this strawberry candy, and that's another layer of simulation, or simulacra, I should say. Uh, it's a, it is a simulacrum of the of whatever strawberries, probably the selectively bred ones. So now we're two steps away from the real strawberry to the strawberry candy. And then people realize, Wokel po- pointed out, people realize over time that it's very expensive to use real strawberries. So why don't we explore the realm of you know, of of chemicals to find the things that taste the most like the strawberries. Maybe we extract it from strawberries. Maybe we synthetically produce it. We could do that in two steps. We we extract it from strawberries. We make a new strawberry candy with extracted strawberry extract that's no longer even pureed strawberries. Or then later we figure out a better way to even synthesize a completely fake molecule that you can just make in a lab that happens to taste like strawberries. And so now you make a candy out of that. And maybe that's, you know, now we're to what he said, he's the Jolly Rancher version. And then somebody comes along and makes Jolly Rancher soda and they, you know, strawberry candy flavored soda. But the flavor is the Jolly Rancher put into a soda. And then that flavor is a chemical replica of a chemical extract of a puree, a candied puree of a selectively bred strawberry that is already a mimic of that wild strawberry. So now we're many layers deep into a simulation strawberry. And then he says, now take it one step further, you know, he said perhaps, you know, 7-Eleven creates a Slurpee that is flavored like the Jolly Rancher soda. And he says, now no, my, my vocal story was my kid has never had, imagine he's never had a strawberry ever in his life. And then he's sitting here sipping this Slurpee, the strawberry Jolly Rancher soda flavored Slurpee, which maybe is, I forget, we could go through maybe seven layers of not real. It's super sweet. It's flavored with a, you know, a reduced chemical extract, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's so far removed from the actual strawberry. And then what Vocal says is now imagine that kid comes along this little red berry that looks like the cartoon picture on his Slurpee uh, cup. And he's like, huh, that looks like a strawberry. And the only experience of strawberries that he's ever had is that that Slurpee. He bends down, he picks a berry and he eats it. And he turns, he says, imagine my kid turns to me after this and says something like that tastes like kind of a weird strawberry or bad strawberry or something. Cause for him, the Slurpee, which is his maybe favorite drink 
is what strawberry really tastes like. And so you've got, you know, this this Slurpee that's based on a soda, that's based on a candy, that's based on an extract or a synthesized extract, that's based on a uh, natural extract, that's based on a selectively off a a puree that's candied puree that's based off of a strawberry that's been selectively bred that's based off of those wild strawberries to the point where when when the child experiences his first actual wild strawberry he doesn't recognize the flavor he recognizes the wild strawberry as a bad imitation of his slurpee which is in fact seven or eight layers deep bad imitation of the strawberry. So he's lost connection to being able to even tell the real for what it is. Now we get on the internet. This is everything, right? Everything, you know, this is Baudrillard's talking about advertising. He's talking about how everything is more real than real. He's talking about television. He had this whole essay about how the Gulf War didn't even occur. It didn't actually happen because the, the war was a television spectacle. Certainly things happened in the Middle East, but whatever it was, wasn't what we saw on television. It wasn't the war that people believed that was being fought. And so even, you know, he, he basically argued that, that the, there no history, that nothing occurred in the 1990s whatsoever. Very extreme. But this is a crisis of authenticity. It's impossible to access authenticity. And then, of course, where did... Um, you know, in, in the Matrix, the 1990s are are put up as that that simulation of the 1990s is given as like the the uh, pinnacle time of human history. Of course, that precedes uh, Baudrillard saying that nothing happened in the 1990s because um, the Matrix was made in the 1990s, and they probably just picked their own time. But we get to the internet, and you talk about more real than real. You got deep fakes at this point. Like I've seen myself my own head stuck on Hercules from or Conan the Barbarian or something. And it's like more real than real, right? It looks crazy now, but you can talk about, you know, Photoshopped images. You can talk about deep faked video. You can talk about the social interactions, the social relationships. How many people do you know on social media that you've only ever known on social media that you would say that you actually have real depth of friendship with. Well, the thing is, is what, what Baudrillard would say is that you don't have any depth of friendship. There's no friendship there. And in a very real sense, he's right. Um, what you have is a simulacrum of friendship. It's fake. It's simulated. It's not authentic. And you, if you actually think about how you feel, like literally your friends on social media could vanish one day and you might be, might be weeks before you notice that they vanished and you might not even care. The depth of social commitment to your social media relationships is usually pretty shallow. And that's a very odd way to spend your time living. But these relationships are, in a sense, more real than real. The stuff you see on TV and movies, CGI, more real than real. Reality appears boring next to hyper-reality, as Baudrillard would lay it out. And then with on the on the internet, we're now able to do this in a way where we create our own hyper-real identities, our avatars. People, you know, there was a big thing within internet dating is catfishing, where you're creating a picture of yourself, an image of yourself that you send to people that doesn't match who you actually are. It looks much better than you do. You've worked the angles, you've chosen the photo, you've maybe photoshopped some pounds off, you maybe cleaned up some acne or whatever it happens to be, and you've got a hyper-real identity. And there are many people who have had the collision of that hyper-real identity with reality, where all of a sudden the person they've only known online they have to meet in person and there's anxiety around the fact that reality is about to be discovered, right? So this is a very weird world to live in. So you have this very real sense of a crisis of authenticity, yet again, layer after layer after layer of simulation between us and reality in the postmodern 
literature. Just to touch very briefly, um, Felix, what is it, uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari also are big postmodern philosophers, and I, I'm not as in-depth knowledgeable about their work, so I don't want to dive too deeply into it, but they actually talk about capitalism and schizophrenia, and they talk about how the modern capitalist circumstances is, is, is akin to schizophrenia. This is a major thesis of theirs in Thousand Plateaus, and um, this is, again, just I hope I've tied up in a neat bow, especially at Baudrillard, the idea that postmodernism as a philosophy is a crisis of authenticity. Again, like Lyotard's legitimation by pyrology, postmodernism is the idea that all legitimation is by pyrology. Everything. That's Foucault's idea too. And then even, you know, for Derrida, that the meanings of words, that's all down to consensus. We all agree what the words mean. And so we fool ourselves into believing we're connecting with meaning. We fool ourselves into believing that we are our own person, not conditioned by our cultural milieu that we're trapped within. We fool ourselves into believing that we're doing science when in fact what we're doing is creating a false bubble uh, where the consensus of other people like ourselves is propping it up. We fool ourselves into believing that we're interacting with reality when that which we're actually presented with is an is a simulation of reality that's more real than real. And this is a schizophrenic state of mind for people to live in. Postmodernity is a, or postmodernism is a huge crisis of authenticity. So authenticity is going to be the opposite of what we see happening there. Now we also see this, wokeness isn't just postmodernism. It is also the, the fusion of postmodernism into neo-Marxism. In other words, that's what critical theory is. It's neo-Marxism. And Neo-Marxism has the same crisis of authenticity at its heart. They talk about, incessantly talk about, especially Herbert Marcuse and, and Theodore Adorno talk a lot about the alienation from, the, the, from, from reality that exists in a capitalist consumerist society. Consumerism is one of Marcuse's biggest topics. His most famous book was One Dimensional Man, uh, probably his most influential and most famous book was One Dimensional Man. And what he's arguing there is that the consumerism of society, the capitalist consumerist society, flattens people into one-dimensional entities that have what? What, if we, what are you if you're one-dimensional? What are you if you're one-dimensional? You have lost your authenticity. You're not who you really are. Marcuse talks all the time about these so-called heteronymous interests, that, that man is conditioned and controlled by all of these interests outside of himself. And what has he got in mind? He's thinking about marketing. He's thinking about the conditioning that you get through your schooling and then in your workplace. And you have to go to, what do you got to do? Well, you got to get up in the morning. You got to go to school or got to go to work. You got to do what you're supposed to do. Come home, do your homework or whatever, or watch TV and get fed this steady diet of inauthentic uh, images and, and ideas so that you can make money, so you can buy things that you're being advertised to that you don't even really want, and that you're going to convince yourself that you're happy because of this. Okay? So this is a lack a lack of authenticity. You don't even have your own mind. You're conditioned into a, into a false consciousness about being happy and about enjoying your life, about understanding what you want out of life because of the many influences the heteronymous interests of society that actually control you and that's all down to capitalism and consumerism you see the same thing where adorno talks about the law i mean they all talk about the loss of the aesthetic marcusa talks about the aesthetic horkheimer talks about the aesthetic but adorno is really interested in the, the loss of aesthetic his high culture views of aesthetic. he's very into classical music and very against jazz right jazz is a perversion of true music for adorno 
And why? Because the the true, authentic experience of music is now turned into this kind of uh, free-form expression. He's, he's just essay after essay railing on jazz, which is kind of interesting in a, in a variety of ways. Um, probably a result of the fact that uh, he watched the Weimar Republic fall apart, and probably it's, it's gluttony and it's... it's um, kind of freewheeling attitudes, you know, giving way and making room for the rise of Nazism and jazz bars and jazz clubs in Berlin were legendary. And so he blamed jazz for so much. Uh, but again, this is a jazz is inauthentic to, to high culture, middle culture, pop culture. These are for for critical theorists in general. These are inauthentic expressions of culture. They're imitations of culture. Same thing, crisis of authenticity and what they posited is that liberation, liberationism, they refer to liberation all the time. And what are they talking about being liberated from? Well, it's not just capitalist society or consumerism or pop culture or middle culture or middle class. What they're talking about being liberated from is the whole shebang of all of these interests that are creating an inauthentic life for people. They're looking for people to develop a critical consciousness so they can awaken to the fact that they have false consciousness, that they're held by a society, they're brainwashed and conditioned by a society to not really know who they are or what they really want. You hear this in politics all the time, people voting against their own interests. That's a very critical theory idea, my friends, voting against your own interests. Like you don't know what they are and you've been brainwashed by outside heteronymous interests. Liberationism is going to free us up from all of those influences of society that make life inauthentic, that alienate us from work, or from life, I should say, and, and from our work and from the fruits of our work. Alienation of the worker from the fruits of his own labor was at the heart of Marxism as well, which of course tracked into neo-Marxism. So again, both roots, both deep roots, I should say, of wokeness, neo-Marxism and postmodernism, as philosophical schools of thought, have at their heart a profound crisis of authenticity. So it's no surprise that what wokeness has got at its heart is a crisis of authenticity. All of the above is still present. All of this sensation that we live in hyper-reality, that nothing's real, or that we prefer that which is more real than the real, is there. All of this alienation from our lives due to the systemics, the systemic oppressions of, of the systems that, of power that have been installed that are maintained by the capitalist and consumer in, interests or by the identity uh, identity groups that hoard and, and, and maintain privilege and resources and exclude people they don't want. They consider those people as inauthentic representatives of what's going on. And this is at the very heart of much of the wokeness of critical race theory, for example, um, you have this, this deep longing to try to discover what is the authentic experience of the oppressed person. Systemic power, they claim, whiteness is, is established and it imposes anti-blackness. So blackness is, is, is imposed upon people with that particular uh, set of traits from without and that this creates an experience of being black in a white supremacist society. This is critical race theory that I'm, I'm saying. I don't believe these things. Um, and that, that that experience, there's an authentic way to understand that experience. And if you have that, 
then you're probably going to understand why it's important to be politically black, which is a hyper-real identity. It's more black than black. How do you know? Because if you're black and you don't have that identity, they throw you out of being black. Kanye West can't put a MAGA hat on and say, I think for myself. He can't think for himself because then he's not being authentic to his experience. He has false consciousness in the form of internalized racism. Thomas Sowell or uh, Shelby Steele or... John McWhorter or Glenn Lowry or Coleman Hughes, none of these guys are able to authentically express no such thing as a conservative black person. Joe Biden saying, if, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. This is a hyper real black identity that they're leaning into. But the reason is because they're seeking authenticity in those identity categories. They're seeking authenticity in the victimhood of oppression. You can read that in Kimberly Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins. I did a series, a short series, a two-part series on Mapping the Margins here on the New Discourses podcast. So you can go look that up and check it out. And she has this paragraph near the end where she's talking about the fact that if we were to, there's a fundamental difference. And this was not just Kimberly Crenshaw. She got it from Bell Hooks, who was also doing this. There's a fundamental difference between I'm a person who happens to be black and I am black. And she says the problem is with a identification like I'm a person who happens to be black. That you put the universal humanity first and you erase something important, which is that identity that is imposed by the systems of power that creates the victimhood, that sense of victimhood. And so the identity category itself, in its identification, in self-identification, in authentic self-identification, that's why you can't be Rachel Dolezal and be white and identify as black. You have to have authentic self-identification with the systemic oppression experienced as being black in a white dominant, white supremacist, systemically racist society. And that gets erased and removed if we forward universal humanity and say that we are humans first, some of whom happen to be black. She's seeking authenticity in the victimhood and the oppression, in the identity category, through the identity politics, which is its own irony. There's no, there's, there's no authenticity in politics. So this is a very real sense of replacing the real with the hyper-real and doing so there because there's a c- profound crisis of authenticity at the heart of the whole thing okay so this is where you know we've made the analogy before that that you know Descartes had I think therefore I am cogito ergo sum and for the woke and we definitely mentioned this in cynical theories for example for the woke it's I I am systemically oppressed therefore I am so these authenticity is sought through victimhood culture, through victimhood identification, through victimhood salience, or victimhood centrality, these are all kind of real words, and through the lived experience of oppression, which then has to become central to the epistemology of critical race wokeness. Because authenticity, the crisis of authenticity for the critical race theorists is solved by leaning into your identity category and then acknowledging it the way that it's supposed to be Uh, acknowledged according to theory. And the oppression itself is even hyper-real. It's not even real oppression. Microaggressions, it's hyper-real oppression. You're not even having real oppression. You're you're perceiving oppression in a simulated way that you're then turning into a huge thing. Like, 
it's so obviously when you understand it, a crisis of authenticity is what's going on here. People who don't know how to authentically be themselves in a multicultural, which is a problem in and of itself, really a pluralistic society where where we're a mixed society of different identities, different different cultural backgrounds and so on trying to get along. You seek authenticity by leaning into a politically charged identity category. You see this particularly strongly with trans and gender nonconforming and the bajillion sexualities, the identity as politics in general. But within the trans, you know, the idea is that people, they argue that they're born in the wrong body, that they, they were born in a way that's inauthentic to who they feel themselves to genuinely be. True also of, of non-binary and gender nonconforming and so on. They feel like these identities are imposed upon themselves either by reality or mostly by a society that recognizes the stability of categories. And so they adopt hyper-real identities. Again, the whole thing is a gigantic crisis of authenticity. And there, this is one of the reasons why it's so often tied up with you know cluster B type personality disorders, like we kind of alluded to or mentioned earlier. So wokeness is a crisis of authenticity, and its intellectual precursors are crises of authenticity expressed in different ways. And so at the heart of this whole project is a profound crisis of authenticity. What it speaks into, where wokeness seduces, is so frequently a crisis of authenticity. People not knowing who they are or why they are justified in being who they are or people who are faking it and want to fake it in a way that confers more status upon them. They're playing the game. They're involved in the rat race. And they're afraid to be genuinely authentic in who they are because what if people don't like them? What if people judge them? What if people think who they are is a bad person? And so the woke weaponized terms like racist and transphobe and homophobe that of course refer to real things that really do occur in some degrees and at some times but they make them in these systemic things that are hyper real constructions of themselves they're not even real and so this crisis of authenticity becomes both what wokeness is and what it's speaking what it what it's trying to fill in with its politicized identities but also what it speaks into to seduce people to indoctrinate people to reprogram people into seeking hyper real false authenticity through theory so that's the case for wokeness itself being inauthenticity posing as authenticity so let's kind of come back to authenticity as the kryptonite then against wokeness. It's the thing that will, if you are authentic, I did a podcast on James and the only subs talking about how I watched a little bit of Spanish chauvinism one time, just absolutely repel wokeism. And it just blew my mind. It just absolutely blew my mind that this cultural chauvinism of a Spaniard who would not accept that the Spanish had ever done anything wrong in history while challenged on that by a slightly woke person, um, a rather woke person talking about the conquistadors, in fact. Uh, and they were like, no, Spain has never done anything wrong. Spain brought culture. There's weird cultural chauvinism just absolutely withered the woke person, had nothing to, to stand against it. And the person was being just very, in a sense, authentic to the, to the fact that they're Spanish and they're proud of being Spanish. And so the question then becomes, 
what is authenticity? You know, I feel like as a very authentic person, it's very difficult. I'd be very difficult to seduce me into wokeness at this point, partly because I know it. I think that unless you know the manipulations of woke, you're always susceptible to them. But if you're authentic, so you're not afraid if people don't like you, you don't feel like you have to play some status winning game. You don't have to participate in those so-called reindeer games. If you're actually authentic and you know what the manipulations look like, you're more or less immune. So what is authenticity? And this is something, like I've said, I've wanted for years to, to kind of launch an authenticity project, but it seems so presumptuous to try to do it. And I've been very nervous. I don't like to give people advice, especially big advice like this, but I really need to encourage you to try to be authentic. And being authentic is very difficult. Partly I talked about earlier that it's scary, but now we're going to get in deeper because here's what authenticity is. Here's what authenticity is. I thought about this for many years to come to this point. Authenticity is being who you are when you aren't trying to be anyone. Let me say that again. Authenticity is being who you are when you are not trying to be anyone. So what this means is that authenticity cannot be faked. Because the second you try to fake authenticity, you are trying to be someone. You're trying to be authentic. But now you have entered into one of these simulations, or I guess a simulacrum of authenticity. You're no longer being authentic. Authenticity cannot possibly be faked because it's exactly what you have or what you are when you're not faking it. So the first rule of authenticity is that you can't try to be authentic. You're either authentic or you're not. If you're trying to be authentic, you're not authentic. You can play a little fake it till you make it game to learn some lessons that lead you to the path of being authentic, but you can't fake being authentic. And this is, of course, extra scary because there's no, I can't tell you how to be authentic. I tell you how to be authentic by telling you to stop being inauthentic. Okay, so you cannot be authentic. You are authentic when you stop being inauthentic. And so what you want to learn, if you want to become authentic, you have to go through this very long process where you learn to identify when you're being inauthentic and then learn to drop that. You evaluate when you're being inauthentic and you think, why did I do that? Don't do that. I'll just be myself. And then you have to confront the fact that you will be challenged at who you really are and your feelings will be hurt and you will be upset and you will have a hard time. And you have to do this again and again and again and again and again. And you will get hurt over and over and over again. And, but the, the, on the other side, don't, don't, make, don't make out like it's all terrible. When somebody likes you when you're authentic, they like you, who you really are. So the reward side is huge. And the friendships you, you, you form when you're actually being authentic and the other people you're with are being authentic, they're not being fake, are real friendships. They're very deep. This isn't like the fake crap that the woke try to tell you that to be authentic in your relationships, you have to engage the power dynamics. Bullshit. You be yourself, they be themselves, and you connect as two individuals who are each being themselves and being that little bit of vulnerable, but not like, you know, to be like crazy Brene Brown vulnerable, like everybody's crying and all this crap. Just be your, your damn self and just flat out be yourself and don't compromise on it. I'll give you an example of what I mean by though, that you can't be authentic. You can only, you, you just are authentic when you stop being inauthentic. You can be inauthentic, but you can't, you can't intentionally be authentic. You have to just not be inauthentic. And so this is like when I learned to meditate and I learned 
I got into this one school of meditation and was, was, I did a lot of time with this. Uh, I spent a lot of time doing this that, um, carries the hypothesis that you are not meditating when you're trying to meditate because you're still trying to meditate. Meditation is what happens when you're not doing anything else, literally not doing anything else. And so you can't meditate. You can only stop not meditating. And that's what it defined as meditation. And so you progress in meditating by setting down the other things. And so it gave this analogy. How do you stop doing things? How do you stop thinking? How do you stop, you know, fidgeting? How do you stop doing whatever it is you're doing? And it gave this analogy is like, imagine you're holding a ball. How do you let go of the ball? Letting go of the ball in a sense isn't really an action. You just stop holding it. And it's like that. Okay. You could say, oh, you open your hand, you could get all technical. But the, the idea is that it's, it's not a matter. It's, it's just a, a metaphor, man. It, the idea is that you you stop holding on to a thing. You stop trying to, you stop trying to meditate. You stop focusing on a particular thing or your breath or whatever else. And in fact, the school of, of, of meditation that I was involved in taught that things like single point of focus or, or focusing on the breath or staring at a candle or any of these kind of things that you maybe have heard about, um, are just vehicles that you do them until you forget that you're doing them and then you're not doing anything. And now you've actually entered meditation. They actually taught in that school of meditation that if you spend an hour meditating, you probably achieve when, especially when you're fairly new at it, maybe 30 seconds to a minute of actual meditation in that hour. It's very difficult to not do anything. And the goal has, to, it's a, it's a self-defeating goal, but authenticity is the same way. It's a little actually easier though, once you get the courage to realize that you don't have to be liked by everybody and that you can like yourself and that some people will like you and that it's totally worth it because when some people like you, who you really are, it's so real and you don't really get nervous. I like, I, I don't often get nervous or I get nervous if I have to give a talk sometimes in front of a crowd, but you don't get nervous meeting people. I don't get nervous meeting famous people or whatever anymore at all because I don't care if they like me or not. I'm just going to be me. And if it works out, it works out. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. This isn't confidence. It comes off as confidence, I guess. And I guess that makes me sexy. But the truth is that it's, I'm just going to be myself regardless. And so it's actually a lot easier to, once you gain that courage to just live, be who you are, like what you like, you know, you're going to have to follow some rules. Like if you're like Foucault, you can't get all into your pedophilia if that's your thing. In fact, I would encourage you not to have that as a thing if that's even possible, um, but certainly not to act on it if that happens to be who you actually are. And I'm in a sense, sorry that that's how life bounced for you, but not sorry enough to say that you get some special permission for some activity like that. Doesn't work out. Apologize for the circumstance, but not enough to change anything. Got, got distracted there. The point is that you can start to be authentic when you're confident enough to be yourself and you grow into that confidence, just like you can meditate for like an hour and you get 30 seconds of meditation according to that school of thought. But you know, you do this every day for eight weeks or five months or 10 months or whatever, or two years. And then maybe that hour it actually might contain 15 or 20 minutes of actual meditation. You can practice, right? You can practice letting go and, and just letting things be. Uh, not doing anything. Well, same thing with authenticity. You can grow into the confidence to be authentic by taking the risk of being authentic, to show your real self to somebody else whose judgment you might be concerned about, or maybe less at first and more later. 
and then evaluate what went right, what went wrong, what was okay, what wasn't, where was it uncomfortable, where did it hurt, why did it hurt, why was it uncomfortable? And think about that a little bit, and you can actually grow into that confidence over time to actually just be your authentic self who's actually present in whatever you're doing. And again, just to say it again, you can't fake it. You can't try to be authentic. The first rule of authenticity is that you can't try to be authentic because authenticity is being who you are when you aren't trying to be anyone. You literally are just being yourself. So like I said, we'll wrap up here. Authenticity is woke kryptonite because wokeness comes from and is and speaks into and uh, agitates a crisis of authenticity. Its goal is to agitate a crisis of authenticity, to alienate people, to make them feel alienated from themselves, from the real world around them, from their lives, to make them feel like you can't connect to meaning. It's Derrida. That you can't be who you really are. There's Foucault. That the world itself is no longer even real. That you can't even interact with the real world. There's Baudrillard. That it's driving you mad. There's Deleuze and Guattari. That Everything is just a matter of, of consensus and of stories that are not even true that we need to be intensely skeptical of, and there's Lyotard, and that it's all a big mesh of heteronymous interests of other people who want you to do certain things. There's, uh, there's Marcuse, that, that it's, it's, you know, crappy middle culture, low culture, pop culture interfering with your ability to actually enter, to, to experience real culture. There's Adorno. That we need to be liberated from all of this and have this kind of magical utopia where everybody just gets to be authentic. And somehow that magically arises when we have uh, all of these heteronymous interests driven by capitalism taken away from us and consumerism taken away from us and marketing, public relations and propaganda all taken away from us uh, because we fundamentally changed the whole system. It's inauthenticity in, in identity. You have to make your, your identity hyper real, a politicized identity instead of just being yourself as a person who happens to be however you happen to be. Being how you happen to be is authentic because you're not trying to be anyone. Being a politicized identity, making your identity political, believing that there's true, some true self hidden from you by the conditioning of society that you can't access, thus creating a hyper-real projection of that that's more real than real, that's all a crisis of authenticity, and it can't abide real authenticity. And real authenticity that's at least aware of the manipulations that are used to try to knock it off its feet is immune to those manipulations. There's nothing more scary, as scary as it is to be authentic, there's nothing more scary to people who don't know how to be authentic than somebody is who is authentic. The very smart people that I complain about frequently they are a form of the bourgeoisie. They are not authentic. They might, I hope they can become authentic. They're not authentic. And their lack of authenticity, their lack of ability to, to, to just be themselves instead of sucking up to some famous person or some, you know, they want their pat on the head from somebody or they want their recognition from somebody or they don't want to be disliked by, by the people in the country club. That's all inauthenticity. They're all trying to be somebody. And when they encounter somebody who's genuinely authentic, who's genuinely just themselves, it's very uncomfortable for them because it exposes something in them that they wish they were, that they wish they had. It's always been the case, Marx was a little bit wrong with this, that the bourgeoisie hate the capitalists. They envy the capitalists. 
and then they project that down onto the the proletariat who tend to or the, really the working class who they're trying to turn into a pro- discontented proletariat this whole thing is all this gigantic crisis of authenticity it seeks to alienate people from themselves and their lives to suck the joy out of everything because when you're inauthentic your joy is just as fake as you are and if you want joy and contentedness in life and satisfaction in life and you want it to be real it can only be real by letting it into the real you and it can only happen by bringing the real you to life which means you have to be authentic which means you have to stop being inauthentic this is why it's so important to start asking yourself who you are what makes you who you are what are you afraid of and other people discovering that you're maybe not who you project you are out to them and you want to try to whittle down about that and if you don't like who you are if you think what you are requires a projected persona an inauthentic self work on yourself go do something take up a hobby try to master it gain some depth it's going to take a while it's not easy it is a humbling process to master something but you will enrich yourself and you will become interesting and when you've become interesting because you've become interesting not because you're saying things that sound like they're interesting not because you're pretending to be interesting but because you've actually done something that's interesting then you can be authentic then you'll be comfortable in your being authentic and then you'll be in a much better happier contented situation because your happiness your contentment all becomes real even the sadness and and sorrow and grief that you feel is all the more real as a result it's not fake it's not performative no more performativity no performative gender no performative political race no performative traditionalism these pomo trads that i've talked about crisis of authenticity kids um it's very very boteryard so i'll tell a quick story that i came across one time kind of to close then about inauthenticity and authenticity this is a story um this is not my story this is a story from the the writer uh, neil gaiman and so he said he was at his party one time and he felt like he was there and he was out of his league all these people were doing these incredible things he's meeting meeting all these incredible people and he you know is very awkward or whatever and he doesn't really know who everybody is he has first names kind of only and you know all these people are like really big deals and he kind of finds himself off talking in the corner where there's another man named neil so you're neil i'm neil you know and he's talking about his feeling of being kind of a phony like he doesn't belong there as celebrated as it recognizes a writer as he is doesn't feel like he belongs there and he's like you know the other neil's like but no you you really do deserve to be here you're a great writer blah 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 i don't belong here and he says well why not and he says well all i ever did was people told me what to do and i followed orders and i did it and i just did what other people told me to do i didn't do anything particularly like i didn't there's no self initiative no self taken initiative or whatever so you have this massive imposter syndrome conversation happening between neil gaiman and the other neil and so the neil gaiman you know i guess maybe he does know who he is i don't remember the story exactly it doesn't matter says to the other guy he was like yeah but you went to the moon because it was neil armstrong right and so a lot of times when you think that you can't be yourself 
you actually can be yourself. You can just be who you are. And until you've done things and accomplished things in life, which most people haven't, they haven't done much, although that's a whole separate podcast we should do about valuing the small things that you do in life and being proud of the small things that you do in life, it's okay. And, you know, you don't have to freak out about that. You don't have to live up to other people's expectations. You can still just be yourself and be appreciated for who you are. This is just a very briefly touch on that. This is a great wisdom, you know, of everyday folks. Every, I hate folks. Ah, I can't say that word. Everyday people, normal people, down-to-earth people. You like you look at the pictures that they post on social media. You ever done this? Like you can tell the difference between these fake and authentic people and the real people. Because the fake and authentic people are posting all these like perfectly manicured, you know, bookcases and they have all this like nice table setting and everything's all like mm, perfect. Da, da, da. And then it's all projection. It's all performance. It's all look at me. Look at look how good everything is. You know, they've put out this. But when you look at real everyday ordinary people, well, the pictures are of their family. The pictures are of their, their not particularly nice house, their messy living room, life, their boat. There's something to that. So be yourself. If you don't like who you are, do something with yourself. Try to find something that you're interested in and take it to a level of mastery and realize that mastery of anything is cool as long as it's you know something productive and pro-social. Then you can start walking the path toward authenticity. And that's only if you lack the confidence. You should actually just be able to be who you are now and let the people who accept you, your real friends, accept you for that. And the people who don't accept you for that, be grateful for, for the separation they're giving you because it's not really worth it. So my encouragement then to you is to start looking for ways for yourself to be authentic and understand that the manipulations, the reason or one of the reasons that the manipulations of the woke movement are working so much right now is because so many people, especially in the professional class, feel like a bunch of phonies because they're not authentic and they don't know how to be authentic. And you need to be authentic. I assure you, your life will be better if you're more authentic. And if you are authentic and you understand how these manipulations work, just a little bit about them, it's very easy to resist them. It's very easy to stand up to them. So my encouragement for everybody is take the time to become authentic. Face your fear. Become authentic. One last time, authenticity is being who you are when you aren't trying to be anyone. So stop trying to be someone. And if you want to become someone, go do it. Stop trying to be someone. Don't perform. Just go out and do and be who you are. I believe in you. I'll like you for it, or at least respect you for it, even if I don't like who you are. Uh, and I don't have to, and you don't have to like me, and everything will be great. So I encourage authenticity. It's worth it. It's worth everything.